Hello, and welcome to episode 90 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Ryan Estrada. Ryan has worked on comics such as Star Trek, Popeye, and Garfield, and he has a new graphic novel, The Band Book Club. This is Matt, and I'm joined by Constructing Comics co-host Noah. Hey there. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Why don't you uh, start us off with a short bio about yourself, and then we'll get into some good making comics talk. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you for having me. My name is Ryan, and I just make so, so many comics nonstop. Uh, I started pitching comics to newspapers when I was six years old. Uh, I didn't get the job, but I kept bugging the same newspaper until they finally hired me when I was 15. Uh, And since then, I've just been making all kinds of uh, creator-owned comics and graphic novels and things for different publishers, anthologies. and now just recently I've started working on, like you said, bigger stuff like Star Trek and Popeye. And uh, I just like to explore and make uh, interesting things that I travel around the world, have adventures and use those uh, as inspiration for what I make. Very cool. So the, the, the newspaper was, uh, was that like a, like a the traditional, like three panel strip, like uh, Calvin and Hobbes sort of uh thing that you were going for yeah it was uh very traditional in the the comic strip that i finally got published was about an orange cat who was too lazy to chase mice uh so it you know i was 15 i didn't uh my life experience had been reading garfield so that's what i wrote about but it was my own characters that uh so yeah it was it was a three panel comic strip that was uh once a week um in the paper and uh Big deal for 15-year-old Ryan to to do that. It was in the Oakland Press, which is a Michigan newspaper. Yeah, and so, like, comic strips used to be, like, a big deal. Like, those guys, the the Watersons, and uh, I'm drawing a blank on who drew Garfield, but those guys were, like... Jim Davis. Jim Davis. Those guys were, like, big-time celebrities uh, when those mm-hmm. things were in the paper. It's kind of, kind of crazy and strange how that uh, has all gone away now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah that, uh, I mean, it's, it's still there. It's still going. And like, it's, it's weird. It's the exact same strips that I, I read when I was a little kid are still in the paper today, um, either in reruns or illustrated by the, the original artist's son or grandson or something like that. And so you did that comic for from when you were 15 to like college age. And then did you go to college to study cartooning and animation? Yeah, I went to the College for Creative Studies in Detroit. I was uh, studying animation. Uh, it was a traditional animation program. It was brand new uh, there, and I I did yeah I did got a bachelor's degree in that. That's very cool. And uh, did that help you like inform your your comics creating craft doing like animation, having like a strong animation background? Well, I think what I what I learned from studying animation is mostly that I hate doing animation. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed, uh, learning it, but like when I sit down, I, I realized like, okay, I'm studying animation right now. If I have an idea, I could sit down for like four years and, or get like a team of a hundred people and maybe cut it down to two years and <laughs> a whole big budget. And then after, maybe after five years, I could release something and people see it, or I could just make a comic this afternoon and share and have yeah. it online by tonight. So I'm like, I think I'm gonna stick with comics. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it did teach me a lot about, um, 
you know, about motion and posing and things like that that can apply to, to comics. Uh, but mostly it just made me love comics more. That's cool. So what was the, uh, what was the, the time frame when you were studying animation? Cause I had a, uh, I had a good friend that, you know, that's, that's what he wanted to do. And then basically he saw toy story come out and he was like, I'm done. The, he's like, there's, there's, I, there's nothing I, I can do now. So were you sort of in that same time frame or was yeah, was I graduated like, in, in 2002, which was the year that like Toy Story had already come out and then Disney were like trying to come out with more 2d films and then they didn't do well. And instead of, you know, thinking about me, why don't we make better movies? They just said, ah, 2d's dead. And they <laughs> just let laid off everyone. Um, and so from there, you, you turned to, you turned your focus to comics. Uh, what were, what were after the comic strip, what were in the newspaper, what were some of the, the first projects that you worked on? Uh, well, after I graduated from college, like I said, I, I moved to South Korea. Um, it was just kind of the, the first move was, uh, I didn't know how to, where to go to get a job. I heard about jobs teaching in Korea at like 2 a.m. on instant messenger from a friend. By 3 a.m. I had a job. And then I just kind of worked on fun things of my own uh, in my free time. I started out just making comics about kind of the adventures I was having traveling. And then uh, one of the very first uh, uh, comics I did for someone else was called Gamer's Edge, which was based on an old comedy blog about a guy who worked at a video game store called Acts of Gord. Um, and then from there, I did, a, for a while, I did the official comic strip of Live Journal um with their mascot frank the goat and uh and then from there i just started doing more anthologies and things and uh kind of building up to to doing my own work at the time when you were making your own like comics based on your own adventures were you sort of like sort of in that first like group of like online comics people where you're posting things like to the internet or what were you doing with those comics yeah i was uh posting them online like uh one of the things i did a lot i was i, I was very big into early on was like challenge comics like the 24-hour comic um so i i did a lot of my early comics as part of those challenges like i did a i first the first thing i did was 24-hour comic that i failed at uh i only got uh only got 12 pages done so i decided to go into training for the next 24-hour comics day and i did a 48-hour comic and a 72-hour comic and so i would draw comics as part of that and then kind of release them online um, and it's it's sad that was back in the early days where everything was a lot lower resolution. So like yeah. everything was scanned at like 72 DPI and that's the copies <laughs> I have of it now. But back then you put, you put those online and that's like, you know, that's, that's all you needed. 72 DPI scan and uh, put those on a website. And uh, it, I mean, it was nice sharing my, my work with people, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like it was a big money maker. I was having advertising or anything. It was just kind of sharing my work. That's cool. And then that got eyes on your work from there. And uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I great. did. Uh, early on, I tried to do a lot of like, uh, um, like publicity stunts like that to try and get eyes on my work that, you know, uh, but what I, I, what I learned is like, I might have been better just to spend the energy just making better comics. Cause uh -huh. like, one thing I did is I did a 168 hour comic. That was like the, the end of my big, uh, like how how long can I extend the that challenge? And so I did a page per hour for a week straight, locked in a camper, 
Oh, wow. And then uh, uh, another thing that I did was uh, a guest comic day that ended, people started calling Ryan Estrada Day, where two years in a row, uh, I secretly contacted like every web cartoonist I could and asked if I could do a guest strip for them that they would release unannounced on the same day. So that on that day, everyone would go to the internet and see my comics everywhere. Huh. And uh, which was a lot of fun, a lot of work. But then the problem was I get all, all these eyes on me. Everyone's interested in what I'm doing. And then I'm too exhausted for spending two months straight doing nothing, making comics that I don't make anything new and they get bored and move on. So, oh my gosh. That's amazing though. That's, that's so impressive. So do you, did that like though hone your skills as far as like being utilitarian with your pages and your panels and things like that? Like, is that sort of like where you learned, like, like, you know, found a style and like a way to like sort of, uh, I guess make the, uh, you know, make the comics creating process as fluid as possible for you? Yeah, I think that doing a lot of guest strips like that really taught it was like a whole other like going to college again because it taught mm -hmm. me so much just from like not copying other people's styles, but looking at other people's styles, seeing how they work, seeing what makes them tick and adapting that into my style and making my own version of it. It's like every time you do one of those, it's like it's kind of like, a, you know, an X-Men where like like if you were able to take a little bit of everyone's powers and like become the most powerful mutant like that, but like, it's just learn. Oh, 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 now I get how this person, how their eyes work. I get how, why these poses work. And, um, and just, especially in that short of time, like I said, it was always like a month or two that I do like a hundred strips or 50 strips or something like that. And also it, it ended up being a lot more work just because I'm, I'm terrible at writing gags. Like I can't, I can't write like a, a three panel strip that like, this is all you get. Like, here's a joke. Like I, I have to build gags from like, let's introduce characters. Let's introduce a situation. Let's introduce a, throw a wrench in the work. So like my guest strips were always like equivalent of like a 10 page comic book. People would be like, I don't, I can't fit this on my site. Ryan. I'm just doing it. But so I, I did a lot of those uh, really long strips. And I remember like, I was working so hard at one point that I was literally working 24 hours, including in my sleep my gosh. because uh, like I, I would work all day and then go to bed. I, there was one night where I worked all day. I went to bed and then in my dream, I woke up and went back to the desk and started <laughs> working again. And then I woke up and I'm like, it's all gone. <laughs> oh, I worked. It was in my dream. But then the next night I had the same dream and I sat at the desk and I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't my house that picture's not there. I'm dreaming. So I know if I draw, it's going to disappear. But if I spend the day writing and I think real hard and remember what I wrote, I can draw it the next morning. So I literally knowing it was the only time I've ever had a dream where I know I'm dreaming and I'm like, okay, I need a script for dinosaur comics. And so I'd write, write the joke. And I'd be like, now I know this paper isn't going to be here when I wake up. So I'm going to think real hard and remember it. <laughs> and I'd wake up and re like really quickly write down all the ones that I wrote in my dream and draw them. So it was, oh my gosh. I've, I've never, I, I've never been able to work like that since, but just the intensity of that was just allowed me to literally work in my dream. <laughs> so you That's became like, a comics warrior and a dream warrior at the same go. time. That, oh, that's I mean, a... Dream Warrior more than the comics were because some of the comics were not great. <laughs> you, make, <laughs> you make that many comics in a month, they're not all going to be winners. 
but no one can say that. Well, very few, I'm sure, can say that they made that many comics in a month, and then also dreamt dreamt wrote their comics at the same time. Mm. So that's so uh, the, the other weird thing that happened with that is that like one of the comics that I made, um, like added a word to the dictionary. Uh, oh, wow. Have you ever heard the word normcore? Yeah. Yeah, I, I that came from one of those comics that um it was it was a punchline it was a it was a guest comic I did for Templar Arizona and it was just the punchline like I had a bunch of people with weird subcultures and the punchline was like the stupidest uh fashion trend I could think of which was normcore <laughs> and then shortly after that like I guess it caught on and then it went on to become like the um it was a runner up for wor- uh word of the year wow. it's been in like uh it's been in advertising. It's been like, I, they've used it on like parks and recreation and Brooklyn yeah. nine, nine. That's and where I've heard when, it was on parks. Yeah. And Rec. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Bron Swanson was Normcore, <laughs> And then like, but when this first, I didn't remember making that comic and people were talking about it after it was nominated and they kept tagging me in the conversation. It's like, what are you guys talking about? They're like, you, you made this comic, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, I completely forgot that I made that. <laughs> That's amazing, man. So, Working uh, like basically for slave labor on yourself mm-hmm. for year, like you know, for a long time, and then um, building enough of an audience. Uh, like, at, at what point did you like? Did you make it like you know? And you were were you teaching on the side during this whole time as well? Yeah, uh, for the first while I was teaching, I was working a little bit, and like I. I was traveling around. I, I taught in Korea. I went and volunteered in Thailand. Uh, I taught at, a, I did training at a call center in India while making comics. And there was one point where I decided um, it's time. I'm going to go full time as an artist. And I kind of, uh, I, I moved to, to Mexico, got a place and invited some other artists to live there and just decided I'm going to try and go full time. Um, that's when I started a business called cartoon commune where I did like custom comics. I built a site where it was flat rates. I'll make a comic about whatever you want. I ended up doing a lot of like uh, comics as wedding favors, uh, like how we met, they passed it out their wedding or I draw, I did a lot of like draw the, uh, the CEOs of this pharmaceutical company as rock stars or <laughs> something like that. Um, draw how our app works. Um, I did stuff for like rock stars and senators and stuff like that. And for, uh, for a good, I think, 10 years, that became a full-time job. Um, and I'd, I'd move to a new country every year while, while doing that. Um, problem was the comics were terrible because it's, you know, I mean, I, I spent like, a, like 10 years not making any comics I was proud of because, you know, if you work like a, a day job that you don't particular, you're not particularly passionate about, you know, all day you're excited, like, I can't, get wait, can't wait to go home and draw comics. But when your day job job is drawing comics that you hate, it's not like, woo, that's done. Let's move this over and sit at the exact same desk and draw other comics. Yeah. It just kind of kills your, your energy. So it was a good 10 years of doing that before finally I was like, this, this is scary, but I'm going to only do comics that I'm passionate about. And I kind of closed down the cartoon commune and, uh, and rejected all that that work and just tried to make things that i'm proud of and that's where i've been for like the past seven years is trying to build back up to making things that i love 
So That's what's really your cool. what's your setup like since you're you're moving around so much? Are you are you drawing like traditionally, uh, you know, pen and paper, or are you digital with a with something that uh, you can move around with pretty easily? I I really wish I could be digital, and I've I've tried. I've bought different antiques, and I've bought uh, computers with built-in things like that. But I just I can't. Uh, I guess I'm I'm I'm. I'm too old and set in my ways. I, I, just, I, I can do it, but it, it doesn't feel like my style. And so I, I, draw, I draw traditionally on paper uh, and ink and then scan it and color digitally. Um, and I'm, I'm not fancy. I, I just use whatever tools I have at hand. Like now I'm teaching English again and I'll literally like draw panels of my Star Trek comic on the back of kids' homework that they turn in <laughs> and then like take it home and scan it. Cause you know, once you get in the computer, all you need is the lines. I don't need nothing fancy. And yeah. then, uh, yeah. And so that, that's kind of what I do. It, like for, it, when I was traveling a lot more, I was, I had this giant scanner that I had to carry everywhere and like try not to break. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was always terrified of like going on an airplane with my giant scanner and then it breaks. And then like someone notices I have long shards of glass and be like, I swear, I swear it's just a fucking scanner. <laughs> like it's, it's weird. All the things you're not allowed to bring, but you can bring a scanner that has a giant pane of glass that with one hit could be a weapon. Oh um, but now, now I've kind of been settled in Korea uh, for a bit. So it's, I don't have to be as mobile. Um, I, I actually have a, a studio here and, actually have a desk and, and places to put all my stuff. So it's, it's uh, like, for it, I have to think a lot less about that. When I was traveling to new country every year, I had, um, I had this uh, suitcase that I made with like, I, like in, in the, uh, in the movies when there's like a, an assassin and they have like, they open the suitcase <laughs> and there's like the foam with like a, a cutout for each gun and each mm -hmm. knife. Yeah. I had that with like, here's a cutout for my scanner, for my pens, for my laptop. And, <laughs> um, it was, yeah, I, luckily I don't have to worry about that as much anymore. That's still awesome. Do you do, uh, for penciling, are you like uh, blue line pencils and then inks over that? Or do you do like traditional like HB, you know, uh, black lead kind of stuff and then erase that? Yeah, again, I just use whatever is at hand. Um, typically like the pencils that kids have left on the floor of the classroom. That's whatever, so awesome. Whatever I got handy. I just sketch and then it's, it's really the only part I care about is the pens that I mm -hmm. use. I, you know, I, I go through different ones, but just make sure I have something that I'm comfortable with that I can draw fluidly with that doesn't leak on the paper I'm using. As long as I have a good pen, I don't care what paper or pencil I'm using because I can um, erase all that afterward or digitally remove it. Um, What's a good pen for you? Uh, the one I'm using right now, let me, let me grab one. Awesome. I love it when it goes to this place. <laughs> oh, where'd they go? Oh. Uh, the one I use right now is called a preppy. It's a fountain pen that's made in Japan. They come okay. in different sizes. This is what I've fallen in love with recently. Uh, the preppy platinum fountain pen. Preppy pat platinum fountain pen. Right before this call, I was just talking with someone about ink pens. And I'm always looking for the next good one to talk, you know, to try out. So I'm going to have to remember that. Yeah, check these out. I've, I've fallen madly in love with them because they got, they got different sizes. You can get uh, very precise with your, your line. It, it goes really smoothly. And they're easy to refill? Yep, yep. They got a little, right at the, the stand where you buy them, they got little, little things you plug right into them. 
That's awesome. Okay, I'm going to have to keep my eye out for those. Um, probably they'll probably be online here, probably not in mm-hmm. stores, but I'm definitely going to have to keep my eye out for pens like that. So um, after the, uh, the, the, the newspaper comic and some of your adventures in web comics, what was, what was the, one of the first uh, uh, professional jobs that you got uh, in comics? Um, I think the, the first really big one that I got was when I was in flight, uh, the, the flight anthologies that are, uh, were run by Kazukabushi. Um, that was a, a big thing for me. I was a big fan of all those artists and getting to be involved in that. And, um, I mean, most of the, the solo books that I did, um, at the beginning were, were things that I did myself and self-published, um, things like Aki Alliance and, uh, um, the kind books like that. Uh, when I when I first started going full time, I, I decided I started my own uh, kind of um, pay what you want ebook bundle business that I worked with a bunch of artists and I did a bunch of books for that uh, that were like um, like the kind is a, a werewolf comic that I made. Um, there was a bunch of comics just about my adventures about different about you know the time I. Um, was thrown out of a train in India the time that I uh, was caught in a coca war. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've, I've, had, I've done a lot of insane things on my adventures, almost eaten by lions. Uh, um, yeah, just nutty stuff. Uh, so I did about a lot of comics about those. And it was really, after years of doing that, it was about like four or five years ago that I kind of, I've been making stuff and sending it out to publishers, sending it to agents and getting constantly uh rejected for things and i i kind of got the idea that like i don't know if uh you know if anyone's interested in publishing my comics and i kind of i switched i did audio drama for a bit and i kind of didn't exactly say i was quitting but i basically kind of said i'm i'm going to quit comics wow and uh just do audio drama for a bit and it was after i quit and stopped seeking work that all of a sudden um, I guess all the work that I'd done for all those years started to pay off because people started contacting me out of the blue, uh, offering me, um, jobs, uh, like one of the, the first one in that wave was, uh, George Takei had contacted me, uh, about a, an anthology that, uh, he was doing for the Japanese, uh, National Museum. And then, uh, Iron Circus, who I'd worked with in the past on a, a Poorcraft book started uh expressing interest in working with me we got band book club off the ground there and then just a lot of anthologies uh i got the email out of the blue for uh king features to do popeye and it was in really in the past few years that uh, i mean i've always made so many comics but usually it was on you know self-published things that i made myself i'd do a kickstarter or i'd sell ebooks um or print and ship my own books but really been in the past few years that I've uh, started to get all these more professional jobs. Does that like, is that kind of nice to work for a publisher to know that like you just draw it, send it in, they take care of everything else after yeah, doing it, it yourself it, for so many years? Yeah, it really is. I, I really love doing it. I love all the like, like promoting and doing all these other things to that. I love that part of it, but I know that like, as just one dude out in South Korea, like there's not much I can do. Like I, I do it cause I love it. Cause I don't know that it has much of an impact, but like with iron circus behind me, 
um, like being able to get my book in into bookstores and uh, you know in previews and all these things that I don't have access to and getting me like reviews in these big journals that would never have known I existed then like when I do all you know I can I, I I'm doing much more on band book club than I ever did on my previous stuff because I know that now it has an impact like it's mm. um you know if, if I promote it like people can easily you know they go to their bookstore they see it and be like oh I heard about that on the, from this tweet on this podcast something like that and right so I it's it's nice to have like this huge running start of what they they've done um, and giving me opportunities that I wouldn't. And Iron Circus, I'm just so happy to to work with with them. It, it's so like focused around um, creators. Like it's um, when I, I've compared my contract to other people who've worked for much bigger publishers, and they're like, "Wait, you get what percent? <laughs> I get, whoa, whoa! Like everything on my contract is like a thousand times better than their, like comically better than theirs." Um, so it's it's just really nice to work with a publisher that cares about artists and does the things that make my job easier while not keeping me from doing the things that I love to do. That's really cool. And do you think you found a home there or the, yeah. like, you know, yeah, that's good. That's yeah, really great. I mean, I, it, it, Iron Circus is kind of like the, the first place I go and uh, with, with anything that I have. And it doesn't mean I won't work with other people. I'm happy to work with it because I have I work on so many things. There's no way Iron Circus could publish all of them. And right. I'm really worried about Iron Circus getting sick of me because I'm working on a lot of different things with them. But um, I mean, I'm, I'm still doing anthologies and, uh, and like, uh, you know, working with other people and the types of things that Iron Circus doesn't do. But I want to work with them every chance that I get. That's really cool. That's really cool. So um we're definitely going to talk about banned books some more but with some of the licensed properties um what was was that like was there because i i i i've heard in the past that like you know maybe with like the like the gi joe comic there's a lot of stuff that you have to like get signed off by hasbro like did you did you have any any uh, uh what, what was the experience working like on on a licensed project or or you know something that has such a long track record or, or a history like a Popeye, a, a Star Trek, a, a, you know, a Garfield. What, what was that like? Yeah, I, I've always dreamed of work, working on more licensed properties. It's something that I really enjoy doing, not as a substitute for, for what I do, because I, I love telling my own stories. Mm -hmm. But it's a really interesting challenge for me to, uh, to take something and try and, you know, make it my own, but like make it something new, but still make it uh, interesting to the, to the fans and not like upset people. It, it's, a, it's like a puzzle to solve, to tell something new and something that's been going on for so long. And it's a, it's a, like the kind of thing that I do anyway, just when I'm sitting on the bus just for fun. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've long dreamed of doing more of it. And I've kind of hit the jackpot with the jobs that I had because I, I've heard all the horror stories about people that like, um, you know, every single line has to be signed off by so many different people and so many different levels of the original creator, the IP owner, the marketing guy, like everyone has different opinions and like you draw something and someone changes their mind and change it again. I've never had that. Um, like the Star Trek that comic that I do is actually, uh, it's true stories about uh, the Star Trek that only exists in other people's heads. 
Uh, because Star Trek is one of those things that's like, it's so ingrained in our culture that everyone has a different reaction to it. Like the first one was a true story about how when I was in uh, middle school, I started having these weird sci-fi dreams and I was describing to my friends and they're like, that's, that you're describing a season of Star Trek. And I'm like, but I've never seen Star Trek. <laughs> and and I, and they, I look at the picture and I'm like, that's not what the characters look like. This guy's a big blue alien. This guy's a bird. And so, but it, what, what, it, what, what came about was that I had bought this new TV in a garage sale that someone had set an alarm on to turn the TV on every night at like 3 a.m. or whatever, and then turn off after Star Trek was done. And so it was playing the audio softly. So I was hearing it and my dreams oh, were wow. filling in the images. So I got to draw what my dreams looked like. And then the, the ones I've done since are about people, uh, a friend of mine who grew up in a cult that believed Star Trek was real. Wow. Uh, another one that I'm working on now is about uh, fan artists uh, creating their own Star Trek worlds throughout history and then connecting. And so since I'm making, you know, I, I get to draw all the characters and likenesses, but since it's not the real characters, it's something that existed for someone else no one has ever said anything about like, I can draw them as goofy looking as I want. And like Patrick Stewart doesn't get to be like, no, fix my nose because it's not <laughs> Patrick Stewart. It's the version of Patrick Stewart that ha existed in someone's mind. That's really and cool. And similarly, like with Popeye, it was for the uh, um, Popeye's uh, uh, cartoon club, which is where they, they specifically brought on different artists to do their own thing and draw in their style and do something unique with it. So I got to do my own thing in my own way and explore. And uh, so, yeah, I've been very lucky that I, I haven't had any of that like super picky, like, wait, we got to send this actor and make sure that they don't think you made their nose look too big. Um, which that's not to say I don't want that to happen. I would love like <laughs> just as just, I think it'd be fun to do it once and it might drive me crazy. And I never want to do it again, but I, I love creative challenges. So I think that that might be an interesting creative challenge to do in the future, but I've loved the ones that I've done so far. So you've never had the, uh, the Rob Liefeld, uh, Tom Cruise where Liefeld showed up late to the meeting and Tom Cruise read him the riot act and then didn't like the way he, he drew him. Uh, no, I've never had that, but I, I would love to have to go to a meeting for, with one of the celebrities. To, I, I mean, you know, here's the thing. If you get to make a comic and then Tom Cruise yells at you, then you can make a second comic about Tom Cruise yelling at you. Yeah. And then he, get, he, he doesn't get to, to say anything about how you draw that one because that's your own comic. I'm in. I'll do it. <laughs> So you had mentioned earlier about uh, your 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 newspaper strip, um, and there was the, the uh, I believe maybe you said Orange Cat like got uh, too lazy to to chase mice. How much of doing that um, were you able to to bring into your Garfield Garfield work? Um, I mean, I yeah, Garfield is some like I was in love with Garfield as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, like I was, a, I had a whole room full of merchandise. I had like a shrine, basically all the posters and toys. And, uh, you know, my, I mean, my, my comic wasn't just a, like it had a whole set of characters and one of them just happened to be an orange cat that was friends okay. with a mouse. Um, but I mean, I've always like, even after I became an adult and I became less, you know, less obsessed with Garfield. I, one of my favorite things to do with friends was have a, uh, bad Garfield party 
which is you get a bunch of artists together and without any reference, everyone draws the worst Garfields that they can, <laughs> which is really fun because everyone knows what Garfield looks like, but not like enough to draw them perfectly. And so you see a lot of people's style coming out. And so I actually kept all of my bad Garfields from like back from college to now. And in every uh, strip I drew of Garfield, I drew him differently. And it was based on one of those bad Garfields that I drew from, you know, somewhere maybe a few years ago, somewhere like 20 years ago. Um, so that was a lot of fun to bring all of those and like, these are canon now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so I'm sorry, go ahead, Noah. No, Matt, I was going to ask, I was just going to keep the conversation moving towards a uh, uh, book club. Yeah, we're, we're on the same page. So um, yeah. why don't you tell us uh, where the, the idea for this, this story came from and uh, a little bit about hooking up with, uh, with the publisher. Well, Band Book Club is a true story about my wife, um, uh, who in the 1980s was in a band book club in Korea, who at the country at that time was kind of under a, a dictatorship. And uh, so she grew up in, under a dictator and didn't know it because it was kind of like, uh, people were like forbidden from talking about politics okay. and like you could get thrown in prison for reading a book about democracy or anything that they didn't like. So it was just, no one talked about it. She didn't realize it. And so this was a story about my wife that I had no idea about for, or, you know, we'd known each other. We'd been married for like uh, six, seven years. We'd known each other uh, since like 2002. And, um, just it wasn't something that she uh was like hiding it was just something that was so normal to her she didn't think to mention it mm -hmm. and just one day she'd met with some friends from back in those days and we're walking and she's like oh yeah uh, you know back when we were in the band book club and i got interrogated by the secret police and i'm like wait what and i heard a little bit of the story and i just tweeted about it and then i guess uh spike who runs iron circus saw those tweets and then uh, a month later, I got subtweeted uh, because she was doing like a Twitter thread about her dream projects that she'd like to publish. And one of them said, uh, my time growing up in a band book club in Korea, in parentheses, if you think this is about you, it is, please email me. And I'm very happy that I saw that tweet. And then I'm like, are you subtweeting my wife? And she's like, yes, let's do it. Let's make the book. So uh, we decided to, to do it. And I, I learned so much more about the story than I ever knew. Uh, my wife reunited with all of the people that were in her band book club. And we learned about like um, her friends that like had gone to prison because they uh, like one guy, uh, he'd, he'd been like, he, he'd been interrogated because they had a picture that they thought was of him, like throwing a Molotov cocktail at a cop. And then they, they interrogated him for 48 hours, found out it wasn't him. And he was just about to get out. And then like the slip cover fell off of his book and they realized it wasn't his bath book. It was a band book and he went to prison. Um, there was another friend that uh, he ran the school newspaper and the school newspaper, they had a, a police officer that was there. Like uh, they had to show the police every uh, article that they were going to publish and he would okay it or say they had to cut it. And then he, at the same time had his own secret newspaper that he would go at home and publish all the articles he wasn't allowed to publish in the school newspaper and like risk his like risk going to prison to sneak around the school and hide copies for people to read and all of all of these stories that i learned and we just kind of turned it into this uh graphic novel about these 
this group of friends like learning about the world that they live in and uh and uh learning to to live with that and how to through banned books kind of learning to fight against it that's really wow. cool yeah those are those are awesome stories so how did the the process of your wife did your wife um just tell you the stories and you sort of like made an outline or did you guys sit down and you know maybe go beat for beat or 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 were you just sort of again taking taking the stories and forming them into to a script yeah the one thing i i made sure of from the beginning that i wanted to be really clear about is that she she was not the subject of the book she's the co-author of the book um that which it happens too often that people like um write a book about someone else and kind of you know use them as flavoring for what they want to say, which is not what I want to do. We, so, um, uh, you know, my wife is not a writer. It's not something she's particularly interested in. Um, so, uh, basically we would have, we would go out to a coffee shop and I would just quit, like ask her questions and she would tell me the story and then I would kind of write it out, show it to her. And then she would make suggestions, make changes to say, this doesn't feel right. This didn't happen this way and kind of, um, uh, you know, help me shape the story to match what happened. And then, like I said, she uh, would travel around and interview uh, the people that she had been in the band book club with, people that were in other band book clubs, teachers, uh, all the people from that period of her life, uh, record them, come back, play them for me, and kind of translate what they said uh, she also took me to a lot of the places that where the story took place. I went to the university. I took all the lots of photos of all the hallways and classrooms. Um, we actually found one of the old buildings like just before it was torn down. We didn't know it was going to be torn down, but we arrived to check it out. And there's a notice on the door that says, do not enter. We're tearing this down tomorrow. And we kind of snuck in and <laughs> took all the photos of, luckily, that just happened to be the day we arrived there. And now um, we got you. Oh, no, no, no. Yep. Uh-oh, <laughs> busted. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, so... Yeah, it was it was nice. So did you, with hearing from different people and, and having different uh, interviews, did you then able to, were you, did you think, I can sort of fit these pieces in, like like where they might work, or did you still try to tell like a linear story from like... Um, like the beginning of like one person's experience um, sort of until the end, like where maybe these people went their separate ways. And like you said, your wife mentioned to you, Oh, back when I was in a band book club. So how did, how did you do that? Yeah. The, the, the hard part was there's all these different stories from different people that, you know, that, that happened over the course of four years and, you know, it was a long time ago and not everyone remembers every detail of like what was said and what, what situations led to what. Um, so what I kind of did is I, the other members of the band book club in the book, uh, I just created a set of characters. And also, you know, we, I don't want to use everyone's real names in this yeah. book, um, it, especially when they're admitting to crimes and making Molotov cocktails and, you know, things like, which not that, not that ba- the band books are still crimes today they have to worry about, but just, you know, I, people have their privacy. Mm -hmm. So uh, I created a set of characters and then just took their stories and applied them to those characters. Um, So everything that happened in the book is real. 
it's just a fictional character doing it as opposed to me blowing up someone's you know <laughs> life and telling everything that he did and just kind of figuring out how these things fit how one leads to another and so a lot of it was me trying to do that and then showing it to my wife and showing it to these people and saying does this feel real you know it's not a documentary i know that this person didn't say this and you know but does it feel real and accurate um and so there's a lot of trying to turn it into a story and just learning new details that make it fit together like one of the things was um like the the hardest part for a long time was the ending because you know i can make things fit and like even learning things about my you know just knowing my wife so well and knowing like knowing her parents and talking going to uh, family dinners and learning things about her parents that helped like become a metaphor that make things work together. The big problem was how do I end the story? Because there, there was no big uh, moment that everything came together. And I, I kept having to like create things that I'd be like, this works as a story, but this didn't really happen in exactly this way. And it felt like I was like lying to the audience. Hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden we heard this story from the uh, the guy that I mentioned that did the uh, the school newspaper, where one day he had finally had enough and wrote something he wasn't supposed to write in the school newspaper, and the uh, the police came and they burned his newspapers in the middle of the school and everybody was there. Wow! And I'm like, oh my god, this is literally, it's a book about uh, it's about banned books and they're literally burning books written by one of the main characters of the book, while every character is there. And uh, so that was, I was able to like use that to bring all of the plot lines together. And, um, you know, I, it, it's hard to know if that happened at that exact moment in the story, but it did happen with, with that group of friends. So it's, um, you know, it's finding all these things that really happened and figuring out the way to make them make one lead, one thing lead to another so that the stories are true, but also the characters feel real. That's really cool. That sounds like a really uh, great way and very inventive way of tying things together and that uh, real events together into a, you know, a more, you know, typical three act structure. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's, it's um, when you are working with reality and also like fiction at the same time, it's, it can like, you have to be very careful. Like one of the examples is, um, there was a, a teacher that did some very creepy things. Um, like in addition to the character and fake names, we also gave a fake name to her university because we right. didn't want to like, if we say the dean of the university did this, again, I wasn't there. He, the dean of the university did do things that were unkind, but he didn't say these exact words. I don't want someone being like, this book alleges that this guy said these words. Um, so we did that. But like, for example, one of the, there's a teacher that did something creepy. So number one, we changed the name of the school, but also we changed his exact job so that no one could trace it back to him okay. and say, you know, like that. Uh, but that, so I made him like the teaching a Shakespeare class because it fit with the plot in something yeah. we had to cover. And then when we were getting uh, people from Hyun Six past to read the book and give us feedback, like I said, we wanted to make sure it felt real one of the teachers that was so kind and willing to give her time and read it and give her thoughts was her actual Shakespeare teacher. Oh, wow. And I'm like, Oh no, Oh, <laughs> I gotta tell you some things before you read this. Uh -huh. 
uh, this is not you, obviously. Um, but she was totally cool about it. She's like, I get it. Uh, she, you know, she writes plays, so she understood what I was doing. And I'm like, just please know this is not about you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's gotta be. You know, that's so exciting what you're describing is finding those solutions to interpreting reality. And do you get like, is that just sort of one of the joys of creating comics for you are finding those inventive ways of, I guess, interpreting things? Yeah, for me, the best feeling in the world is where you've been working on something for a long time that doesn't quite click. And you never know when it's going to, it never happens when I'm sitting at the desk working. It's always like when I'm on a bus like zoning out or when I'm climbing a mountain or like taking a walk and I wasn't even exactly thinking about it. All of a sudden you figure out the one little missing piece, the one scene, the one character interaction that makes it make sense and takes these, takes it from being like a bunch of ideas and scenes to a story with a beginning, a middle and an end with characters that feel real. Like when I figure out that moment, it's like euphoria. I'm so excited. And I like, have to run home and tell my wife about it. And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just let me get this out. I'm very excited. Like so, that, that for me is the best feeling in the world. That's so do awesome. you, do you keep that idea in your head until you get home or do you, do you carry like a notebook to, to jot it down so that like when that, that flash comes to you, you don't, you know, you don't go about the, the rest of the bus ride and go, Oh, what was that amazing ending or that amazing connecting tissue that I just found for the story. Um, how, how do you handle that? Yeah, I, I get so excited about it that I don't need to write it down. Like it's okay. all I'm thinking about for the next week. But like the, <laughs> that's part of the way that I write is um, when, when I'm writing comic, like it's a lot of the things that I work on are things that I've kind of been thinking about for like 10 years. Like I, I kind of develop things for a long time before I have the opportunity to do something with them or know what they're going to be. And so like I don't write anything down for like the first six years of the project. Typically, like what I'll do is it's just kind of like, you know, if I'm sitting on a bus, I got nothing to do. I'm like, I'll think about this project today. And it's just like taking a DVD off a shelf and watching a movie where I'll just kind of watch it in my head. But every time it changes a little bit because I've thought about it more. Um, And ideas kind of naturally disappear. Like the things that I forget, um, good riddance, obviously they weren't good enough to remember. Um, and like, whereas like if I'd written it down at the start, like then it's in concrete, this part, this scene is there. And then it would take a lot of editing to like figure out why that doesn't work. But then when I just let my mind think about it and my mind makes the connections of what scene fits with what it kind of just naturally, they, they disappear and then like at some point in the process, I'll be like, didn't they do this at some point? And that, that wouldn't fit at all in what's there now. And then once I've kind of watched this movie in my head so many times that, uh, that I, I feel like it's a finished product, then it's a matter of like every comic I make is like an adaptation of a movie I've already seen that no one else has. Mm-hmm. And it's sitting down and typing the words on the page and trying to match what it felt like when I was watching it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I, I feel like there's like a Stephen Stephen King quote where he's like, any sort of uh, thought that you have that's um, sort of doesn't stick in your mind wasn't wasn't important enough to to turn into to a story. So it seems like you have a a similar philosophy there. Yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'll write down like a, 
a nugget of a story idea of some idea that I have that could lead to something. Mm -hmm. But once you start, once I start working on the idea itself, it's just like you said, if it doesn't stick around, maybe it wasn't meant to be there. And earlier you had mentioned that you, you do a lot, you get a lot of story ideas from, from life experience. And I know that there's also sort of like a, a school of thought that it's important for creatives and, and writers to get out and, you know, live their lives and, and have experience that, that informs stories. So, um, you know, you moving around and having so many experiences, it probably gives you more to pull from. Yeah. I mean, like I said, and it was also because I was 15 years old, but like with the early comics I was talking about, that's when my whole life was reading comics, stay home, re, you know, reread the entire run of Garfield, read the newspaper, watch Looney Tunes. And that was my life. So like, that's why my first comic was about an orange cat too lazy to chase mice. Cause that's, that's what my life was, is reading about that. And nothing was unique, but um, just kind of, as I go around, you know, I mean, first of all, just I'm lucky that I'm very bad at traveling. So I'm constantly having like insane adventures that I didn't set out to go on. I just like, you know, I messed up and now I have to sleep on a park bench in a typhoon. I got lost. I almost <laughs> got eaten by a lion. Uh, I, um, I get that's yeah. All, all of these things that happened to me that I can make comics about directly, but also just, you know, traveling all these places, meeting people from all over the world, uh, seeing interesting things. And even when I write fiction, um, I'm able to draw from experiences that I've had. Like uh, one of the uh, comics I wrote, or sorry, the prose that I wrote was for the um, uh, Machine of Death anthology. Um, are you familiar with that? By like uh, Ryan North and David Malky organized it. Um, it's an anthology of stories about a machine that tells you how you're going to die. And uh, like I was writing one about machine of death uh, in India. I was like about the call center because I was working at a call center. Mm -hmm. I decided I can write a story about the call center where people call for help with their machine of death. Uh, and uh, which is an experience that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't like moved to India and worked in a call center. And uh, then also, as I was thinking about the story, like uh, everything that happens in that story, even though it's a science fiction story that happens in the future actually happened to me, except instead of a call center for a machine of death, it was a call center for a mortgage company. And then like um, in my story, like the machine of death was banned in India. And then like one of the things I do is I'll like, as I'm going through life, like if I have, a, if I have an opportunity that I'm not at all interested in, but I'm like, I got to see how that works. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I might make, make comic about some point. So one time I was walking through India and like uh, porn is banned in India. And so like, there's this black market of like people selling like porn VCDs in weird hallways. And I'm like, why would like, there's an internet. Why would you risk arrest to go <laughs> buy a bad VCD? Mm -hmm. And so I'm walking and this guy's like, you know, the typical like guy in the trench coats, like you want to buy some porn? I'm like, no. And I walk away. I'm like, but I do want to know how the black market works. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, man, show me what you got. And he takes me in this old dark stairwell and like closes the door, like pulls down the gate and there's a little bit of light coming through and there's a burlap sack that he pulls out. And then as I'm writing the story, I'm like, I know exactly how someone would sell a bootleg machine of death. 
Yeah. And so I was able to have every detail of the, the gate coming down and the looks the guy makes and um, where he was standing. So like, like I said, all of my life experiences, I'm able to apply to even things that are not uh, based on my life just because I've seen so many weird things. That's amazing. So um, let's uh, let's let's finish up with talking about uh, when Band Book Club is is coming out and how how people can go about uh, getting their hands on it. Uh, well, Band Book Club is going to be released on April twenty first, uh, and it can be pre ordered literally everywhere you get books. Uh, um, I yeah, go to your local bookstore, go to your your favorite uh, evil international conglomerate conglomerate. <laughs> Wherever you want to go, just ask for a band book club. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been getting a lot of buzz and getting a lot of good reviews. Librarians apparently love it. If you ever want to be a big hit, put the word band book in a, in a title and librarians will fall in love with you, I guess. Because <laughs> like every librarian in America seems to be ordering multiple copies. Um, so uh, you can even go to your library and ask to, uh, to put your name down to get it as soon as it comes out. Buy your copy, order your copy, whatever you want. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, and libraries are a huge, like, uh, not untapped market, but sort of like a market that people don't really um, think about. You know, you, you think about your, your brick and mortar store or your, you know, your internet uh, seller, but like a lot of people don't realize that there's a, there's a huge market in, in getting your books in the library. And I actually heard that, like, if you can get popular in the library, and like, you know, somebody will check your book out and then they won't bring it back and that'll force the library to, to go get another, another copy of it. So you sort of can get repeat sales that way. Yeah. I mean, even if they, they don't just like, especially if it's a kid's book, like, like it, these books wear out and yeah. if a bunch of people check out a book and it, it gets worn out, they're going to order another copy. And there, there are more libraries, far more libraries out there than there are bookstores. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you can get, uh, uh, your book is, is part of that, like the kind of book that shows up in libraries and kids get excited about, it can bring you a lot of success. And like, just with library, if it's a book that librarians are like recommending to kids and those kids, if they like it, they'll go out and buy their own copy. They'll recommend it to their friends. So it's been very exciting. It was, I, I got to go to the American Library Association annual conference last year. Uh, we got, my wife and I got flown out to meet all the librarians and um show up our book and it it's it's been really great to get the support of that kind of community awesome is that the one in washington dc yep okay cool um one last question about the book is it going to be translated into uh to to any other languages uh you know maybe for the for the people of korea to to, to read yeah what's really cool is uh we there's another company called idea in korea who's releasing the korean version and they actually hired my wife to be the translator so she got to translate her own book into her own language uh, awesome. which is really cool because it's it's her life and he's like who better to um to translate it so it's um and since it's her translating she was able to be she was you know more free to make changes to like what might work better you know the the things that maybe koreans would understand better she doesn't need to be as like explain things as much and use the space to explain more about her life so it's, it's a slightly different experience that you know someone that's being paid to translate a book wouldn't be able to have that much freedom but um so it's uh 
I'm very excited about the Korean version too. Uh, so to follow up on that, uh, and this is just my lack of knowledge on the subject, are, are books in Korea, are they like manga? Do they, do they go in the, the, the opposite order of, of an English book? So is there any, there's nothing that you have to, to do there, is there? No, uh, Korean books uh, read left to right, just like American books. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, Noah, do you have any uh, final thoughts or any uh, final questions as we wrap up here? Uh, you've been an inspiring person to talk to. So thank you for your time and wowing us with your life story and your insight into creating comics. It's always great to hear from people with unique perspectives and everyone we've had on really has a unique perspective. So I'm very glad that we got to add your unique perspective to this, you know, to what we've created here on the podcast. So thank you so much. Thank yeah. You for and me. yeah. So also, why don't you list, uh, I know that you have a, a, a website with a, with a lot of uh, your work up there, but uh, why don't you give out your website and your social media so people can keep up to date with all the stuff that you're doing? Well, best thing to do is go to ryanestrada.com. Uh, it's got, you scroll down, they got the little book covers of pretty much everything I've done. You can click on them. A lot of it you can read for free. Uh, and that'll direct you to all my social media. All the buttons are there. But I'm at Ryan Estrada on Twitter and all the other uh, social media links you can find at ryanestrada.com. Yeah, I was looking at your website. It is very impressive. There's a, uh, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of work up there to, to check out. I've done so many things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, I agree with Noah. This has been very uh, inspirational. Um, and, uh, you know, just to, just to hear the, the stories of, um, you know, your work ethic, uh, the, the, some of the uh, interesting adventures that you've had in life and, and, and making comics this is very cool. So we'll have a link to your website um, and uh, your social media and our show notes. Um, if anybody would like to give us a follow, we're on Twitter at Construct Compod. We're on Instagram at Constructed Comics Pod. We're on Facebook and YouTube at Constructed Comics. And we'll be back with a, another episode very soon.